We are officially in Christmas season, and so that means uh, a number of things. Uh, one, there was a choir with Christmas songs. Uh, two, we officially start what we call our year in giving push. And if you've been here uh, for quite some time, you know the drill and the deal with this, but if you're sort of new to South Valley, here is the deal. Um, most nonprofits rely on roughly 25% of their entire budget coming in in the month of December. So as far as giving is concerned, December has to be a really, really good month for churches and nonprofits. And so typically, we'll set a goal for the month of December that says this is how much we need to bring in on top of what would be a normal month of giving throughout the year. And so our goal this year, similar to last year, it's roughly $250,000 above what would normally come in, and that's to accommodate this kind of year-in push where nonprofits rely on that 25%. So um, every year, we've, we've made that goal. This church has been extremely generous and faithful, and so I just put it before you to consider how you, might pr- how you can pray and maybe consider helping us reach that goal of having December be a, a big giving month. And then it helps us finish the year strong and hopefully carry over momentum into the new year. So that's uh, the second thing. Uh, the, the third thing I'd like to draw your attention to with the Christmas season is in your handout, there's this invitation. And it's an invitation that has details about Road to Bethlehem, Christmas Eve, and Christmas morning services. So there's a couple of these in each of the handouts, as well as we printed out a ton in the back for you to pick up if you want more. But these are just to, to give to people, to invite people to Christmas Eve, to Road to Bethlehem. Give it to your neighbor with, like, bake some cookies and give it to them. Incentivize the, invi- like the, the, the invitation, like, you, you want some more of these cookies maybe next year? <laughs> you know? There's, there's more of these invitations. If we see you at Christmas Eve, or Road to Bethlehem. Okay, then the third note, and it has to deal with moving on with the rest of service, is that we, for December, will be taking a break from our series going through the Gospel of Matthew and do a short, one-month-long December Christmas series entitled Joy Has Dawned. Now, in this series, we are going to be going through psalms, psalms that point to the coming of Jesus. And so, we are looking back to what the psalmist looked forward to. And today we're gonna start off with a psalm that, um, just to be honest, uh, it's kind of like, this is right in line with like who we are in our DNA. Like, I'm gonna read it all, the whole thing to you to start off, and you're gonna like, that doesn't sound like Christmas at all. Uh, But if we dig deeper, we take our time, um, we'll see that, that I think it has everything to do with Christmas. So this is Psalm chapter two. It's a short psalm, so I'm gonna read it in its entirety, and then we're gonna go back kind of verse by verse and break it down. This was written 1,000 years before the time of Jesus by King David, so roughly 1,000 BC. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then it ends. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are who take refuge in him. All right. So when you approach the Psalms, you have to know a couple things. First, this is the hymn book of ancient Israel. These are the songs that they sing again and again and again. They would have these things memorized. There's not, like we live in a weird time. We have recorded music. And if you like a song, you can just take out your phone and you can play it again and again and again. And there's countless songs and you have, the, you have access to the sum total like of recorded music on your phone and it's just there's song upon song. But these are the songs of Israel in the Psalms. And these are the songs they would primarily sing again and again and again. They memorized them. They know them inside and out. If you were to say, why do the nations rage, the average person would be able to finish the line just instantly. So this is their hymn book. Now let's set up the scene here. It says, why do the nations rage? The people plot in vain. The scene is trying to get you to picture the rulers of the earth, all the kings of the nations, and they're, they're angry. They, they have rage and they plot. They actually plot. And who are they plotting against? It says against the Lord and his anointed. The anointed here uh, is the Hebrew word Mashiach. This is where we get our word Messiah. So the nations, the rulers, the powers and principalities at work in the psalmist's day, they conspire. They get together. They're not warring with each other. This is the image. They're not at war with each other. They come together and conspire against God and his anointed one. Now why? It says in verse three, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They look at the rule of God, the wise rule of the one true king, and they see it as something oppressive, it's something constraining, it's something to be, to be broken, it's like chains on you that you wanna get off of you. The rule of God, the rule and reign of God and what he demands of the world is offensive to the rulers of the age. They hate it, they despise it, and they wanna burst the bonds. Now here, uh, the psalmist is probing like deep into the mechanics of the world because this isn't just true then. This is one of those biblical truths that is true then and always. Like the world, the powers, the principalities, the rulers, they look at God's rule and what he demands of the world and they hate it. They see it as restrictive and oppressive, like shackles that need to be broken off. Now do you understand how that's true then and it, it, that's, that's always true? What is, speak of God's holiness to this world and what he demands of this world and see the response. Speak of God's ethical demands of the world. Speak of things like lifelong monogamy. Speak of things like protecting the most vulnerable in the womb, the unborn, and you will get a response that says something like, those rules are restrictive, oppressive. I wanna break free from those. I want true freedom. I wanna be free from the tyrannical rule of this God. So it's a statement that's true and always true. So the nations conspire and they plot against God and his anointed. What is God's response? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
So all the powerful nations, they're conspiring against God, and what does he do? He laughs. He laughs. And he gives his answer. He says, my answer to the evil kings of this world, the powers, rulers, and principalities, is that I will set my one true good king on Mount Zion. As for me, verse six, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The nation's plot, nevertheless, I'm putting a good king on earth, my representative. Now, the image of laughter is, is it's interesting when you think about it coming from God. And just understand, it's, it's metaphorical language. So like in the scriptures, um, it says that God's eyes roam the earth. God doesn't have literal eyeballs that he's like, like the eye of Sauron moving around trying to find people type of thing. He is an infinite spirit. It's, it's speaking metaphorically and illogically. It's when the Bible says God's eyes roam, it's saying that he sees all things. The theological term for that is omniscience. He knows all things. He's omnipotent, he's all powerful. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere at once. And so when you look at those sort of omnis of God, all powerful, all seeing, all knowing, even if all the world's powers come together, the response from a truly infinite being is to laugh. There's like no comparison. It's like, what? Like you, you, you think this, is, this, is, this isn't a fair fight. Like, I know it's all of you guys versus me, but I'm an infinitely powerful being. It's like, um, you know, when like a little chihuahua starts yapping at your feet or something. It thinks it's bad. Like it thinks it's tough. It's some special yapping at you. Like, you just laugh. Go eat cheese, rat. Get out of here. <laughs> Find some cheese, rat. It's like a joke. There's no, there's, there's no, no chance. God responds, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, important note, this psalm, Psalm 2, um, was one of the most foundational psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 were sort of like always read as the introduction to the book of the psalms. Um, in fact, some later collections actually just refer to them as one psalm, like one unit, 1 and 2. But additionally, Psalm 2 becomes likely an inauguration song for the king. So whenever there's a new king, that's anointed and appointed when they inaugurate that king, they would read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? What is God's answer? God's answer is that he has a king in Israel, the good king, who is gonna right the world of its wrong, who's gonna do justly, who's gonna, who's gonna be the king that they're not. So you have to picture this, you know? Every time there's a new king, Psalm 2, Psalm 2. <clears throat> I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse eight, uh, this king is going to inherit the nations. Now there's an interesting like, tension there because in one sense, this king is going to destroy the evil rulers of the nations, but simultaneously, those who align with righteousness and goodness they will be a part of his inheritance. The one king in Israel will inherit the nations. You gotta go s slow when you read Psalms. The Psalms are Hebrew poetry. It's not narrative, like narrative is like, and then Jesus went to Jerusalem. But the Psalms are speaking in deep poetic fashion in Hebrew and communicating the images and they're, they're wanting you to think and reflect and meditate upon the information being communicated. The king of Israel will inherit the nations. 
And he will break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now that's another image that's actually quite common in the ancient Near Eastern world. So oftentimes kings in this region in this time period, they would write the names of their enemies on, on like pottery. And then you'd symbolically break them or throw them. And it's a way to say that I'm going to be victorious over the enemies. And so, again, this king that God has appointed and putting on Mount Zion in Jerusalem is going to be a king that will destroy the enemies of God. Now, maybe the most important component of Psalm 2 is the first verse. I mean, verse 7, the first verse on the slide. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Now, 3,000 years removed from when this psalm was originally composed, we have the temptation to immediately go, you're my son. Oh, this is talking about Jesus. This is Jesus. That's Jesus is the son of God. But you gotta pause, gotta pause. Because this is normal language of the earthly king in Israel and in the entire region of the ancient Near East at this time period. The king, by definition, is the son of God. The the king who's appointed to be the throne, the idea is that God divinely chooses him and appoints him and says, this is my representative. He is going to do my will. And so if you look at literature from surrounding cultures and if you look at the Old Testament, the king is referred to as the son. Now that doesn't mean he's, in this sense, in Psalm 2, it's not saying that King David is God. He's saying that the son is the representative of God on earth because he's been appointed by God to do his will. So in the Old Testament literature, when you hear son, you are to hear king. And in the Old Testament narrative, it's specifically the king as the son of David. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is a sort of like, um, when you come to the king, you better check yourself. You come, the, the wording is, is, is unique. You come and you are to rejoice with trembling. That's, that's weird, right? How often do you rejoice with trembling? It's this idea that you are going into the king of Israel's domain. He is righteous. His rule is right and good. And so rejoice because he's a good king, but also you come with trembling because this is the king. Rejoice with trembling. And again, here's the, here's the language of the son. Kiss the son means pay your respect to the king. And you, you will ultimately have to choose if you are for or against this king. And so it gives this warning. Kiss the son. So respect the king. Otherwise, he's going to get angry. And you're going to be in trouble. Or respect the king and know that blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 lays out a path. You can either be for him or against him. Honor the king or disrespect him at your own peril. Now again, this is what you need to picture. This psalm is sung and repeated again and again and again throughout Israel's history. Whenever there's a new son of David, whenever there's a new king that's appointed to the throne, 
you would recite, sing, and perform Psalm chapter two. This is a son of David. This is the son. This is the king. Generation after generation. And you can picture the magnitude of the celebration when this occurs, right? Think about even in our in our culture, when there's an inauguration of a new president, like they make a big deal, there's like some parade and they go up and they give some speech and all the news channels are, are turning and watching it. But that doesn't even compare because when we elect a president, half the country is still upset. You know what I mean? Like always, half the country's happy, half the other one's, man, I'm not watching this, man, turn the channel. In Israel, the king is appointed by the prophets and the Lord by extension. Everyone joins in the celebration of God's appointed representative. This is it. This is the king. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? What is God going to do about evil running rampant in the world? God's answer, I'm going to put my king on my holy hill and he will be a good king. Let's celebrate. <coughs> it's a big deal. Here's a little glimpse into how big of a deal it would be. This is 1 Chronicles 29. This is when now King David is preparing to inaugurate his son, King Solomon, to take the throne. So this is a new king being appointed after King David. And David says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Let me just pause right there and make a quick note. That is um, every parent's prayer, and it should be every parent's prayer. You're at the end of your life. Oh Lord, grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that would keep your commandments, that would follow you. May my kids serve you all the days of my life, all the days of their life. And so he prays this prayer as he's preparing his son to be the king, the next in line of the house of David. And then it says this, and this gives you a little glimpse into sort of the celebration and the magnitude of the festivities. Then David said to all the assembly, and you can picture all the assembly, all of Israel, bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly blessed the Lord, their God, of their fathers, and they bowed their heads and they paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day, it continued, and they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifice in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon the son of David, king the second time, and they anointed him as prince for the Lord and Zadok as his priest. So do you feel the magnitude of it? They're continuing the celebrations into the next day. There's sacrifices after sacrifices. There's food and drink. Everyone is filled with gladness. Psalm 2, Solomon, stand up. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? God has set his king. He says, you are the son And this would go on generation after generation. Psalm 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 2. <clears throat> and just to give you a little glimpse into this, <clears throat> David, son of Solomon. Solomon begets Rehoboam. Rehoboam begets Abijah. 
to Asa, to Jehoshaphat, to Jehoram, to Aziah, and you could continue all the way down. Hezekiah, Manasseh, Abner, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, just king after king. Psalm 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 2. Now here's the thing though, is that it was really easy to recite Psalm 2 over King David. And it was really easy to do the Psalm 2 thing over King Solomon. But then, the history of Israel plays out, and what do you observe? You know, God, some of these kings don't seem like your guy. You know, it's, it's difficult when the king is wicked, and you're supposed to sing a psalm that says, this is the son, this is my anointed one, this is Mashiach, this is the one who I've anointed and put in place in Israel to rule rightly. And then you're going like, we know his dad. He ruled for the 30 years before this son. This dad was wicked and evil, and guess what? We think his son is worse. And at some points in Israel's history, I'm sure people started to say things like, why do the nations plot in vain? Why do they conspire against God? It's not just the nations. Our king is a part of the problem. Our king is wicked. He conspires against God. And you see that in, in the biblical history when the kings begin to worship false gods like Baal. And Israel's history gets so evil that at one point the kings are sacrificing their children in fire to false gods. How do you sing Psalm 2 over a king like that? And this wickedness reaches its peak and then God says like, enough, enough. And then 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and they bring all the survivors into captivity and exile in a foreign land. Now, in sort of the, the ancient understanding, if the, temple of your, if the temple of your God is destroyed, that means the armies of, the opposing armies, God was more powerful and they beat your God you would think, did our God, our God lost? Or he abandoned us. The temple is destroyed. Our people are going back into exile. It's like Egypt and, and Exodus all over again. So how do you sing Psalm 2 in a foreign land in exile and in bondage? There's not even a king anymore. There's no throne of David. And so the destruction of the temple is so cataclysmic, you need to understand that it's not just like a really bad thing that happened. The temple, the land, that was the, the, those were the structures that gave reality stability. Our God reigns from the temple. The God of Israel is true God, but now it's destroyed. The structures that make sense of reality come undone. It's not just a bad thing. It's like the undoing of your world. How do you sing songs of joy in exile and sorrow? How do you sing and be faithful in that type of situation? Now, have you been there? When it's not as if something just happens that, that is bad, but things happen that are so bad that the very structures that gave reality its stability for you come undone. And it feels like you have no, like, 
footing to stand upon. There's no foundation. There's no way to catch your balance. I don't even, I can't even perceive reality in the same way. Everything's crumbling down. The temple has been destroyed. How do you sing then? How do you sing in sorrow and in exile when everything around you falls apart? And it gets worse because after these kings and the destruction of the temple, it's not just like things get better. After that, here's the list of generation after generation who is waiting, who are waiting for some Psalm 2 type of king to appear. Because after the exile from Babylon, you have Jeconiah who gives, who's the father of Shittiel, and Shittiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. How do you, that's hundreds of years. What do you do with Psalm 2? Remember, what's Israel's hymn book? What's their worship playlist? It's the Psalms. What's up with Psalm 2? Generation after generation after generation. It's this pretty dark idea. How do you sing in exile and sorrow? But the faithful would hold on hope to Psalm 2, that God would place his anointed king on his holy hill, and that this king would rule rightly and inherit the nations. And then generation from generation passes until the glimmer of hope in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now this word Christ is the Greek word Christos, but it's taken from the Hebrew word Mashiach. What did Psalm 2 talk about? That God would put his anointed king, anointed as Mashiach. So whenever you say Jesus Christ, you are echoing the hope of the Psalms. Christ means Mashiach, this is the anointed king. Now you have to understand that when Jesus grows up and then he begins his ministry, people will hear certain things in light of their songbook, in light of the hymns. So what do you think people are thinking when this occurs? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. What do they hear when they hear the voice of heaven saying, this is the son? They hear Psalm 2. They know Psalm 2 by heart. They've been singing it their whole entire lives. This is the son. This is the one who's the son of David, my king, my anointed one. What do you think Peter means when he says to Jesus, after Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are king. You are Mashiach. You are the the rightful son of David. And then what do you think even at the crucifixion? 
When the centurion says this, it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed out his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed out his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now the centurion isn't a Jewish man. He, he doesn't have Psalm 2, but you need to understand that the categories of the king being the representative of God in heaven and being the son on earth, they have those categories. And the centurion, with what knowledge he has about that and what he's learned from the situation, because remember, what's written on top of the cross? King of the Jews. This is the son, the divine representative. Now you're saying, okay, well, what does all that have to do with Christmas? What do you think Mary hears when the angel says this to her? Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh's salvation. 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What is Mary here? This is the Son. This is the one who will reign from the throne of David. And he's the one who will have a kingdom that will know no end. My child is the rightful heir to the throne. But it goes even deeper than that because Jesus is the son of God in the sense that he's the earthly representative and the earthly king to rule over the house of David. But Mary is told that she will give birth as a virgin and she will conceive of the Holy Spirit, which means that Jesus is not just the son of God in the earthly sense, he's the heavenly son. He is the heavenly son who comes down, who is born of a virgin, and yes, absolutely, the son of God in the earthly sense, who is the son of David, who will rule from David's throne, but he's also the heavenly son. So what you see happening is that God himself is coming in the person of the son, and what he is doing is he's uniting heaven and earth. Why? Because there won't be two kings and two kingdoms. There's not going to be a king who rules on earth and a different king who rules in heaven. The idea is this, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to the one true king and he will be king of kings and lord of lords. He will come from the house of David but his inheritance will be of the nations. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will swear allegiance to him. And he will be king of heaven and of earth. Son of God, son of man. True God, true man, born of a virgin. This is why Psalm 2 is a Christmas story. The king has finally come. And so you have to picture this. 2,000 years ago on that night, Born in a manger, not in the palace. Born among peasants, not among royalty. The eyewitnesses aren't the rulers of the nations. They're shepherds and animals. And then you hear Psalm 2 that night. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? What is the Lord's response? This is his response. 
I will put my king, my representative on earth. He will rule wisely and justly, and he will rule the nations, and the nations will be in his inheritance. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, true God, true man, son of God, son of man. And on that night, Psalm 2 finds its ultimate fulfillment. All those times a new king was inaugurated, and you're looking for the good king, and you're looking for the good king. Finally, on this night in that location, Psalm 2 reaches its total, complete fulfillment. For unto us a child is born from the house of David, born to bring priests to men. Now, how do we, how ought we respond to all of this? Well, in one sense, um, you have to understand the original complaint of the world. The original complaint of the world, the powers, the principalities, the rulers, the kings, was that God's rule is, is something to be thrown off. They looked at God's holy demands of the world and saw that as a tyranny to be undone. But you have to understand that what God demands of the world is for the good of the world. So God's law, his rule, his reign, isn't like bonds that are shackling you. They're not chains that are restricting you. In those laws and those decrees is actual freedom. Let me give you an example. Um, unfortunately, sometimes in our culture, people say stupid things. And you might hear something like this about marriage. Marriage, huh? the old ball and chain, right? Might as well just put it on me now. And you speak of marriage as something that weighs you down, that's oppressive, that's restricted. It's removing freedom. I have to be with one person for the rest of my life. You see the thinking. I have to be with one person for the rest of my life. And you can frame that in, in such a manner that it's like a tyranny. It's like, no. There is a freedom in marriage that is beautiful beyond words. You have the privilege of pouring your whole being for your entire life in love to one person. And that love is reciprocated and you become one flesh and there's a unity and a love in which you can find true freedom. Think about something like greed. You shouldn't be greedy. Well, I want more things. I don't think it's wrong to want tons of things. It's like, what does greed do? It enslaves you. You want something more, you get it. Then what, do you, what happens? You still want something more. And then you get it, and what happens? You still want something more. And you're always wanting more and more and more until pretty soon you're a slave to your own greed and you're never happy. One of the commandments is you should not be jealous. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't go comparing yourself with someone else. Don't compare what you have with someone else. Don't compare how life's treating you or, or what's going on in your life to someone else. Why? Because comparing yourself nonstop will enslave you. You don't find freedom in that. So like when God writes the command, do not covet, don't be jealous, that is a command towards freedom, not towards bondage. There's freedom in that. Think about lust. You look with lust from your eyes upon a woman or a, or a man and, and you begin to lust and then what happens is if you don't take care of lust then it gets out of control 
And if you don't deal with lust, what happens in our world? You have an endless opportunity to look at things that you ought not to. And then you're looking at pornography and it's just a week, once a week or it's just once a month and then it turns into something daily and pretty soon you're addicted to pornography. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make life any better and you're a slave to it. God's law brings freedom. When he says don't do this, it is freedom that's being given. Sin enslaves you. So the kings of this earth, they look at the wise rule of God and they want to rebel. What should we do? We should gladly and joyfully submit to the king. What did Psalm 2 end with? Take refuge in him. There's refuge in him. He is the good king who brings about grace and forgiveness and true freedom. And what does it say? If you don't take refuge in him, if you rebel against him, watch out. There's trouble. And that is 100% true. Either take refuge in him or rebel against him and find out. And so, for Psalm 2, our response as believers should be, Lord, how can I submit more and more of myself to your will? Because it's something you grow in, you know? It's not like you become a Christian. Every component of your life is in 100% submission to him. There's areas that are not in alignment. There's sin. There's areas where you're going, okay, I'm submitting in this, this, this area, but I'm kind of holding on to this thing. So for the believer today, my question for you is, are there areas that you're refusing to submit to the one good king? Today's a good day to say, Lord, help me give this to you. And if you're not a Christian and you're here, you should submit to the king. You should bend the knee to King Jesus. He's the one true king. The nations will be his inheritance. And he's a good king, so he offers you grace and forgiveness today. And so whether you're a believer, unbeliever, it doesn't matter. Today, we want to, as the people of God, submit to God's anointed representative, the true son of God. Son of man, son of God, true God, true man. Let's stand as we take communion.